Welcome back, listeners, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. You and I have something in common. We both enjoy well-told stories, especially classic short stories. This podcast does very well worldwide. We're listed in the top 20 in fiction in over 40 countries, which tells me that there's a lot of interest in literature out there and that we've been choosing stories that many people are enjoying. Thank you for listening and for sharing our show with others. In the past months, we've introduced two more classic short story podcasts, and we have one episode from each to share with you today. My goal is to introduce these new 1001 podcasts to you with hopes that you will subscribe and review us, which is how we grow. The first story is called The Life Book of Uncle Jesse by Lucy Maud Montgomery, and it's from our 1001 Greatest Love Stories podcast. The links to Apple and Android hosts for that podcast are in the show notes. At 1001 Greatest Love Stories, we present stories from men and women who are known as classic writers. You'll find Leo Tolstoy and O. Henry here, as well as Catherine Mansfield, Kate Chopin, Willa Cather, Mary Wilkins Freeman, and many other great classic writers, many of them Pulitzer Prize winners. For me, researching and choosing these stories, especially ones by female authors, has been a voyage of discovery. I've really enjoyed all the writers that I include here, especially Lucy Maud Montgomery and Kathleen Norris. I guess you could say I'm expanding my literary horizons. When you subscribe to 1001 Greatest Love Stories, you won't be disappointed. The stories are fantastic. And now, The Life Book of Uncle Jesse by Lucy Maud Montgomery. After this episode, we'll run a sponsor message or two and come back with a pick from our second new show, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today's story is from Lucy Maud Montgomery, who is a prolific Canadian author best known for her 1908 work, Anne of Green Gables, the story of a delightfully bright and not afraid to speak her mind young orphan who finds her place in the world, and that story was set on Prince Edward's Island. We've done a few Lucy Maud Montgomery short stories. I enjoy her work very much and wanted to share this one with you. This story is called The Life Book of Uncle Jesse. And now, our story. Uncle Jesse. The name calls up the vision of him as I saw him so often in those two enchanted summers at Golden Gate. As I saw him the first time, when he stood in the open doorway of the little low-eaved cottage on the harbor shore, welcoming us to our new domicile with the gentle, unconscious courtesy that became him so well. A tall, ungainly figure, somewhat stooped, yet suggestive of great strength and endurance a clean-shaven old face deeply lined and bronzed, a thick mane of iron-gray hair falling quite to his shoulders, and a pair of remarkably blue, deep-set eyes, which sometimes twinkled and sometimes dreamed, but oftener looked out seaward with a wistful question in them, as of one seeking something precious and lost. I was to learn one day what it was for which Uncle Jesse looked. It cannot be denied that Uncle Jesse was a homely man, His spare jaws, rugged mouth, and square brow were not fashioned on the lines of beauty. Though at first sight you thought him plain, you never thought anything more about it. The spirit shining through that rugged tenement beautified it so wholly. Uncle Jesse was quite keenly aware of his lack of outward comeliness, and lamented it, for he was a passionate worshipper of beauty in everything. He told Mother once that he'd rather like to be made over again, and made handsome. Folks say I'm good he remarked, whimsically. But I sometimes wish the Lord had made me only half as good and put the rest of it into looks. 
but I reckon he knew what he was about, as a good captain should. Some of us have to be homely, or the purty ones, like Miss Mary there, wouldn't show up so well. I was not in the least pretty, but Uncle Jesse was always telling me I was, and I loved him for it. He told the fib so prettily and sincerely that he almost made me believe it for the time being, and I really think he believed it himself. All women were lovely and of good report in his eyes, because of one he had loved. The only time I ever saw Uncle Jesse really angered was when someone in his hearing cast an aspersion on the character of a sure girl. The wretched man who did it fairly cringed when Uncle Jesse turned on him with lightning of eye and thundercloud of brow. At that moment, I no longer found it hard to reconcile Uncle Jesse's simple, kindly personality with the wild, adventurous life he had lived. We went to Golden Gate in the spring. Mother's health had not been good, and her doctor recommended sea air and quiet. Uncle James, when he heard it, proposed that we take possession of a small cottage at Golden Gate, to which he had recently fallen heir by the death of an old aunt who had lived in it. I haven't been up to see it, he said, but it is just as Aunt Elizabeth left it, and she was the pink of neatness. The key is in possession of an old sailor living nearby. Jesse Boyd is the name, I think. I imagine you can be very comfortable in it. It is built right on the harbor shore, inside the bar, and it is within five minutes' walk of the outside shore. Uncle James's offer fitted in very opportunely with our limp family purse, and we straightway betook ourselves to Golden Gate. We telegraphed to Jesse Boyd to have the house open for us, and, one crisp spring day, when a rollicking wind was scudding over the harbor and the dunes, whipping the water into whitecaps and washing the sand shore with long lines of silvery breakers, we alighted at the little station and walked the half-mile to our new home, leaving our goods and chattels to be carted over in the evening by an obliging station agent's boy. Our first glimpse of Aunt Elizabeth's cottage was a delight to soul and sense. It looked so like a big gray seashell stranded on the shore. Between it and the harbor was only a narrow strip of shingle, and behind it was a gnarled and battered firwood where the winds were in the habit of harping all sorts of weird and haunting music. Inside, it was to prove even yet more quaint and delightful, with its low, dark-beamed ceilings and square, deep-set windows, by which, whether open or shut, sea breezes entered at their own sweet will. The view from our door was magnificent, taking in the big harbor and sweeps of purple hills beyond. The entrance of the harbor gave it its name, a deep, narrow channel between the bar of sand dunes on the one side and a steep, high, frowning red sandstone cliff on the other. We appreciated its significance the first time we saw a splendid golden sunrise flooding it, coming out of the wonderful sea and sky beyond and billowing through that narrow passage in waves of light. Truly it was a golden gate through which one might sail to fairylands forlorn. As we went along the path to our little house, we were agreeably surprised to see a blue spiral of smoke curling up from its big square chimney, and the next moment Uncle Jesse, we were calling him Uncle Jesse half an hour after we met him, so it seemed scarcely worthwhile to begin with anything else, came to the door. Welcome, ladies, he said, holding out a big, hard, but scrupulously clean hand. I thought you'd be feeling a bit tired and hungry, maybe, so when I came over to open up, I put on a fire and brewed you up a cup of tea. I just delight in being neighborly, and it taint off than I had the chance. We found that Uncle Jesse's cup of tea 
meant a veritable spread. He had aired the little dining-room, set out the table daintily with Aunt Elizabeth's china and linen. I know just where to put my hands on them. Often and often helped old Miss Kennedy wash them. We were cronies, her and me. I miss her terrible. And adorned it with mayflowers, which, as we afterwards discovered, we had tramped several miles to gather. There was good bread and butter, store biscuits, a dish of tea fit for the gods on high Olympus, and a platter of the most delicious sea trout, done to a turn. I thought they'd be tasty after traveling, said Uncle Jesse. They're fresh as trout can be, ma'am. Two hours ago they was swimming in Johnson's Pond yonder. I caught them. Yes, ma'am. It's about all I'm good for now, catching trout and cod occasional. But t'weren't always so, not by no manner of means. I used to do other things, as you'd admit if you saw my life book. I was so hungry and tired that I did not then rise to the bait of Uncle Jesse's life book. I simply wanted to begin on those trout. Mother insisted that Uncle Jesse sit down and help us eat the repast he had prepared, and he assented without undue coaxing. Thank you kindly. T'will be a real treat. I mostly has to eat my meals alone, with the reflection of my ugly old fizz in the looking-glass opposite for company. "'Tisn't often I have the chance to sit down with two such sweet and purty ladies. Uncle Jesse's compliments looked bald enough on paper, but he paid them with such gracious, gentle deference of tone and look that the woman who received them felt that she was being offered a queen's gift in kingly fashion. He broke bread with us, and from that moment we were all friends together and forever. After we had eaten all we could, we sat at our table for an hour and listened to Uncle Jesse telling us stories of his life. "'If I talk too much, you just check me,' he said seriously, but with a twinkle in his eyes. "'When I do get a chance to talk to anyone, I'm apt to... I'm apt to run on terrible.' He had been a sailor from the time he was ten years old, and some of his adventures had such a marvelous edge that I secretly wondered if Uncle Jesse were not drawing a rather long bow at our credulous expense. But in this, as I found later, I did him injustice. His tales were all literally true, and Uncle Jesse had the gift of the born storyteller, whereby unhappy, far-off things can be brought vividly before the hearer and made to live again in all their pristine poignancy. Mother and I laughed and shivered over Uncle Jesse's tales, and once we found ourselves crying. Uncle Jesse surveyed our tears with pleasure shining out through his face like an illuminating lamp. I like to make folks cry that way, he remarked. It's a compliment. But I can't do justice to the things I've seen and helped do. I've got them all jotted down in my life book, but I haven't got the knack of writing them out properly. If I had, I could make a great book. If I had the knack of hitting on just the right words and stringing everything together proper on paper. But I can't. It's in this poor human critter. Uncle Jesse patted his breast sorrowfully but he can't get it out. When Uncle Jesse went home that evening, Mother asked him to come often to see us. I wondered if you'd give that invitation, if you knew how likely I'd be to accept it, he remarked whimsically. Which is another way of saying you wonder if I meant it, smiled Mother. I do, most heartily and sincerely. Then I'll come. You'll likely be pestered with me at any hour and I'd be proud to have you drop over to visit me now and then, too. I live on that point yonder. 
"'Neither me nor my house is worth coming to see. "'It's only got one room and a loft and a stovepipe "'sticking out of the roof for a chimney. "'But I've got a few little things lying around "'that I picked up in the queer corners "'I used to be poking my nose into. "'Maybe they'd interest you.' "'Uncle Jesse's few little things "'turned out to be the most interesting collection of curios "'I had ever seen. "'His one neat little living room was full of them. "'Beautiful, hideous, or quaint as the case might be, and almost all having some weird or exciting story attached. Mother and I had a beautiful summer at Golden Gate. We lived the life of two children with Uncle Jesse as a playmate. Our housekeeping was of the simplest description, and we spent our hours rambling along the shores, reading on the rocks, or sailing over the harbor in Uncle Jesse's trim little boat. Every day we loved the simple-souled, true, manly old sailor more and more. He was as refreshing as a sea breeze, as interesting as some ancient chronicle. We never tired of listening to his stories, and his quaint remarks and comments were a continual delight to us. Uncle Jesse was one of those interesting and rare people who, in the picturesque phraseology of the shore folks, never speak, but they say something. The milk of human kindness and the wisdom of the serpent were mingled in Uncle Jesse's composition in delightful proportions. We'll return to our show right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. One day he was absent all day and returned at nightfall. Took a tramp back yonder. Back yonder with Uncle Jesse might mean the station hamlet or the city a hundred miles away or any place between. To carry Mr. Kimball a mess of trout. He likes one occasional. That's all I can do for kindness he did me once. I stayed all day to talk to him. He likes to talk to me, though he's an educated man, and because he's one of the folks that got to talk or they're miserable, and he finds listeners scarce round here. The folks fight shy of him because they think he's an infidel. He ain't that far gone, exactly. Few men is, I reckon, but he's what you might call a heretic. Heretics are wicked, but they're mighty interesting. It's just that they've got sort of lost looking for God, being under the impression that he's hard to find. Which he ain't, never. Most of them blunder to him after a while, I guess. I don't think listening to Mr. Kimball's arguments is likely to do me much harm. Mind you, I believe what I was brought up to believe. It saves a vast amount of trouble. And back of it all, God is good. The trouble with Mr. Kimball is, he's a little too clever. He thinks he's bound to live up to his cleverness, and that it's smarter to thrash out some new way of getting to heaven than to go by the old track the common ignorant folks is traveling. But he'll get there sometime all right, and then he'll laugh at himself. Nothing ever seemed to put Uncle Jesse out or depress him in any way. I've kind of contracted a habit of enjoying things, he remarked once, when Mother had commented on his invariable cheerfulness. It's got so chronic that I believe I even enjoy the disagreeable things. It's great fun thinking they can't last. Old rheumatiz, I says, when it grips me hard. You gotta stop aching sometime. The worse you are, the sooner you'll stop, perhaps. I'm bound to get the better of you in the long run, whether in the body or out of the body. Uncle Jesse seldom came to our house without bringing us something, even if it were only a bunch of sweet grass. I favor the smell of sweet grass, he said. It always makes me think of my mother. She was fond of it? Not that I knows on. Don't know she's ever saw any sweet grass. No, it's because it's a kind of a motherly perfume, 
Not too young, you understand. Something kind of seasoned and wholesome and dependable. Just like a mother. Uncle Jesse was a very early riser. He seldom missed a sunrise. I seen all kinds of sunrises come in through that there gate, he said dreamily one morning, when I myself had made a heroic effort at early rising and joined him on the rocks halfway between his house and ours. I've been all over the world, and take it all in all, I've never seen a finer sight than the summer sunrise out there beyond the gate. A man can't pick his time for dying, Mary. Just got to go when the captain gives his sailing orders. But if I could, I'd go out when the morning comes in there at the gate. I've watched it many times and thought what a thing it would be to pass out through that great white glory to whatever was waiting beyond, on a sea that ain't mapped out on any earthly chart. I think, Mary, I'd find lost Margaret there. He'd already told me the story of lost Margaret, as he always called her. He rarely spoke of her, but when he did, his love for her trembled in every tone, a love that had never grown faint or forgetful. Uncle Jesse was seventy. It was fifty years since lost Margaret had fallen asleep one day in her father's dory and drifted, as was supposed, for nothing was ever known certainly of her fate, across the harbor and out of the gate to perish in the black thunder squall that had come up suddenly that long-ago afternoon. But to Uncle Jesse those fifty years were but as yesterday when it is past. I walked ashore for months after that, he said sadly, looking to find her dear, sweet little body, but the sea never gave her back to me. But I'll find her sometime. I wished I could tell you just how she looked, but I can't. I've seen a fine silvery mist hanging over the gate at sunrise that seemed like her. And then again I've seen a white birch in the woods back yonder that made me think of her. She had pale brown hair and a little white face and long slender fingers like yours, Mary, only browner, for she was a shore girl. Sometimes I wake up in the night and hear the sea calling to me in the old way, and it seems as if lost Margaret called in it. And when there's a storm, and the waves are sobbing and moaning, I hear her lamenting among them. And when they laugh on a gay day, it's her laugh. Lost Margaret's sweet little laugh. The sea took her from me, but some day I'll find her, Mary. It can't keep us apart forever. I had not been long at Golden Gate before I saw Uncle Jesse's life book, as he quaintly called it. He needed no coaxing to show it, and he proudly gave it to me to read. It was an old leather-bound book filled with the record of his voyages and adventures. I thought what a veritable treasure trove it would be to a writer. Every sentence was a nugget. In itself, the book had no literary merit. Uncle Jesse's charm of storytelling failed him when he came to pen and ink. He could only jot down roughly the outlines of his famous tales, and both spelling and grammar were sadly askew. But I felt that if anyone possessing the gift could take that simple record of a brave, adventurous life, reading between the bald lines the tales of dangers staunchly faced and duties manfully done, a wonderful story might be made from it. Pure comedy and thrilling tragedy were both lying hidden in Uncle Jesse's life book, waiting for the touch of the magician's hand to waken the laughter and grief and horror of thousands. I thought of my cousin, Robert Kennedy, who juggled with words in a masterly fashion but complained that he'd found it hard to create incidents or characters. Here were both ready to his hand, but Robert was in Japan in the interest of his paper. 
In the fall, when the harbor lay black and sullen under November skies, Mother and I went back to town, parting with Uncle Jesse regretfully. We wanted him to visit us in town during the winter, but he shook his head. Oh, it's too far away, Mary. If lost Margaret called me, I might not hear her there. I must be here when my time comes, and that time can't be very far off now. I wrote often to Uncle Jesse through the winter and sent him books and magazines. He enjoyed them, but he thought, and truly enough, that none of them came up to his life book for real interest. If my life book could be took and writ by someone that knowed how, it would beat them holler, he wrote in one of his few letters to me. In the spring we returned joyfully to Golden Gate. It was as golden as ever, and the harbor is blue. The wind still rollicked as gaily and sweetly, and the breakers boomed outside the bar as of yore. All was unchanged save Uncle Jesse. He had aged greatly, and seemed frail and bent. After he had gone home from his first call on us, Mother cried. Uncle Jesse will soon be going to seek lost Margaret, she said. In June, Robert came. I took him promptly over to see Uncle Jesse, who was very much excited when he found that Robert was a real writing man. Robert wants to hear some of your stories, Uncle Jesse, I said. Tell him the one about the captain who went crazy and imagined he was the flying Dutchman. This was Uncle Jesse's best story. It was a compound of humor and horror, and though I'd heard it several times, I laughed as heartily and shivered as fearsomely over it as Robert did. Other tales followed. Uncle Jesse told how his vessel had been run down by a steamer, how he'd been boarded by Malay pirates, how his ship had caught fire, how he'd helped a political prisoner escape from a South American republic. He never said a boastful word, but it was impossible to help seeing what a hero the man had been. Brave, true, resourceful, unselfish, skillful. He sat there in his poor little room and made those things live again for us. By a lift of the eyebrow, a twist of the lip, a gesture, a word, he painted some whole scene or character so that we saw it as it was. Finally, he lent Robert his life book. Robert sat up all night reading it and came to the breakfast table in great excitement. Mary, this is a wonderful book. If I could take it and garb it properly, work it up into a systematic whole, and string it on the thread of Uncle Jesse's romance of lost Margaret, it would be the novel of the year. Do you suppose he would let me do it? Let you? I think he'd be delighted, I answered. And he was. He was as excited as a schoolboy over it. At last his cherished dream was to be realized, and his life book given to the world. We'll collaborate, said Robert. You will give the soul and I the body. Oh, we'll write a famous book between us, Uncle Jesse, and we'll get right to work. Uncle Jesse was a happy man that summer. He looked upon the little back room we gave up to Robert for a study as a sacred shrine. Robert talked everything over with Uncle Jesse, but would not let him see the manuscript. You've got to wait till it's published, he said. Then you'll get it all at once in its best shape. Robert delved into the treasures of the life book and used them freely. He dreamed and brooded over lost Margaret until she became a vivid reality to him and lived in his pages. As the book progressed, it took possession of him, and he worked at it with feverish eagerness. He let me read the manuscript and criticize it, and the concluding chapter of the book, which the critics later on were pleased to call idyllic, was modeled after my suggestions, 
so that I felt as if I had a share in it, too. It was autumn when the book was finished. Robert went back to town, but Mother and I decided to stay at Golden Gate all winter. We loved the spot, and besides, I wished to remain for Uncle Jesse's sake. He was failing all the time, and after Robert went and the excitement of the bookmaking was past, he failed still more rapidly. His tramping expeditions were over, and he seldom went out in his boat. Neither did he talk a great deal. He liked to come over and sit silently for hours at our seaward window, looking out wistfully toward the gate with his swiftly whitening head leaning on his hand. The only keen interest he still had was in Robert's book. He waited and watched impatiently for its publication. "'I want to live till I see it,' he said. "'Just that long. Then I'll be ready to go.' He said it'd be out in the spring. "'So I've got to hang on till it comes, Mary.' There were times when I doubted sadly if he would hang on. As the winter wore away, he grew frailer and frailer. But ever he looked forward to the coming of spring and the book, his book, transformed and glorified. One day in early April, the book came at last. Uncle Jesse had gone to the post office faithfully every day for a month, expecting it, but this day he was too feeble to go, so I went for him. And the book was there. It was called simply The Life Book of Jesse Boyd, and on the title page, the names of Robert Kennedy and Jesse Boyd were printed as collaborators. I shall never forget Uncle Jesse's face as I handed it to him. I came away and left him reading it, oblivious to all else. All night the light burned in his window, and I looked out across the sands to it and pictured the delight of the old man poring over the printed pages whereon his own life was portrayed. I wondered how he would like the ending, the ending I had suggested. I was never to know. After breakfast, I went over to Uncle Jesse's house, taking some little delicacy Mother had cooked for him. It was an exquisite morning, full of delicate spring tints and sounds. The harbor was sparkling and dimpling like a girl. The winds were playing hide-and-seek roguishly among the stunted firs, and the silver-flashing gulls were soaring over the bar. Beyond the gate was a shining, wonderful sea. When I reached the little house on the point, I saw the lamp still burning wanly in the window. A quick alarm struck at my heart. Without waiting to knock, I lifted the latch and entered. Uncle Jesse was lying on the old sofa by the window with the book clasped to his heart. His eyes were closed, and on his face was a look of the most perfect peace and happiness, the look of one who has long sought and found at last. We could not know at what hour he had died. But somehow I think he had his wish, and went out when the morning came in through the golden gate. Out on that shining tide his spirit drifted, over the sunrise sea of pearl and silver, to the haven where lost Margaret waited beyond the storms and calms. We hope you enjoyed this great short story from Lucy Maud Montgomery. There'll be many more to come. If you enjoy our show at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, please take a moment and send us a review, especially you Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. And please do tell a friend and ask them to subscribe, because when people subscribe, that's how we grow and move up in the rankings. Also, please consider supporting us monthly at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Our Patreon supporters are greatly appreciated. 
We'll return to our pick from 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. Our second new 1001 show is 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Here we offer a growing collection of H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, Alexei Tolstoy, Arthur Conan Doyle, and other classic authors, with an occasional scary old radio episode tossed in for variety. Today we bring you The Family of the Vorgelac by Alexei Tolstoy. One of the first great vampire classics, and a good one. We'll leave links to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre in the show notes for you. As with all our podcasts, we bring a new episode to you every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. All we ask is that you subscribe and tell a friend. And now, our story. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Today's story, The Family of the Vordelac, by Alexei Tolstoy. The story was written in 1839 in French and originally titled La Famille du Vordelac. Tolstoy wrote it on a trip to France from Frankfurt, where he was attached to the Russian embassy. The word Vordelac occurs first in Pushkin's work in the early 19th century and was taken up in Russian literary language following Pushkin. It is a distortion of words referring to vampires, originally probably to werewolves, in Slavic and Balkan folklore. A little bit about Alexei Tolstoy. He was a member of the Tolstoy family and a second cousin of Leo Tolstoy. Due to his mother's closeness with the court of the Tsar, Alexei was admitted to the future Alexander II's childhood entourage and became a Conrad in games for the young crown prince. As a young man, Tolstoy traveled widely, including trips to Italy and Germany, where he met Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Throughout the 1840s, Tolstoy led a busy high-society life, full of pleasure trips, salon parties, and balls, hunting sprees, and fleeting romances. He also spent many years in state service as a bureaucrat and diplomat. In 1856, on the day of his coronation, Alexander II appointed Tolstoy one of his personal aides-de-agitants. Tolstoy served as an infantry major in the Crimean War. He eventually left state service in the early 1860s to pursue his literary career. He died in 1875 at his Kragny Rog estate in the Chernigov Governorate. In European folklore, vampires are undead creatures that often visited loved ones and caused mischief or deaths in the neighborhoods they inhabited while they were alive. The center of belief in vampires really occurred in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, and in some cases that fear resulted in corpses being staked and people being accused of vampirism. The sophisticated vampire of modern fiction was born in 1819 with the publication of The Vampire by the English writer John Polidori. The story was highly successful and arguably the most influential vampire work of the early 19th century. As we begin the story, the Marquis d'Urfey, a young French diplomat finds himself in a small Serbian village in the house of an old peasant named Gorcha. The host is absent. He left the house ten days ago along with some other men to hunt for a Turk outlaw, Alibek. 
"'Upon leaving he told his sons "'that they should wait for him for ten days sharp, "'and should he come home a minute later, "'they should kill him by driving a stake through his heart, "'for then he'd be not a man, but a Vortilac.'" And now, The Family of the Vortilac, by Alexei Tolstoy. The year 1815, all the great heads of Europe were gathered in Vienna, the continent's brightest minds and most brilliant diplomats. Our tale begins toward the conclusion of this historic Congress. The royalist émigrés were preparing to return to their chateaux, and the Russian warriors to return to their forsaken homes. A few disgruntled Poles hoped to shelter their desire for freedom under the dubious independence granted to Krakow by Prince Metternich, Prince Hardenberg, and Count Nesselrode. It was like the waning hours of a lively ball. The once vibrant crowds that filled the streets and establishments of the city had dwindled to a small number of people still seeking diversion, still fascinated by the charms of the Austrian ladies, reluctant to pack up and go their separate ways. The pleasant company, of which I was part, would meet twice a week in the castle of the Dowager Princess of Schwarzenberg, a few miles from the city, beyond a small village named Hitzing. Our hostess's aristocratic manner, her gracious kindness, and the nobility of her spirit and of her intellect made our sojourns to her castle quite agreeable indeed. Our mornings were spent on pleasant rambles. In the afternoon we dined together in the castle or within its environs. In the evenings, sitting by a good fire, we amused ourselves in conversation and storytelling. Discussion of politics was strictly forbidden. Everyone had had enough. The stories we told were borrowed from the legends of our respective countries, or from our own memories. One evening everyone had been telling ghost stories, and our minds were in a restless, uneasy state that was increased by the evening's darkness and the silence. The Marquis d'Urfey, an old émigré whom we all loved for his youthful gaiety and for the colorful stories he told of his adventures and various changes of fortune, took advantage of a moment of silence and spoke. "'Your stories, gentlemen,' he said, "'are no doubt amazing, but in my opinion they lack an essential quality. I mean that of authenticity. I don't think that any of you have seen with his own eyes the wonderful things that you narrate, nor can you attest to their truth with your word as gentlemen.' This we were obliged to admit, and the old man continued, straightening his cravat. As for me, gentlemen, I have had but a single adventure of this kind, but it is so strange, so horrible, and yes, true, that it will strike terror in even the most incredulous among you. I was unfortunately both witness and actor, and although I normally don't like to remember it, I would be happy to tell you the story if it pleases the ladies to allow me. The approval was unanimous. A few of us glanced nervously around at the moonlit tiles of the parquet floor, and our circle drew closer to listen to the Marquis's tale. He took a pinch of snuff, sniffed, and slowly began with these words. First of all, madame, I beg your pardon if I mention the affairs of my heart more often in my story than a man my age should. "'but the romance is an essential part of the narrative. "'Besides, old age has its moments of forgetfulness. "'And it's your fault, madame, "'that you are all so beautiful "'that I forget I am no longer a young man. "'So let me begin. "'In 1759 I was madly in love "'with the beautiful Duchess de Gramont. 
this passion, which seemed so deep and enduring at the time, gave me no rest day or night, and the way that the Duchess played the coquette, as many beautiful women do, only added to my torment. Finally, in a moment of despair, I sought out and obtained a diplomatic mission to the Gospodar, Lord of Moldavia, who was in negotiations with Versailles over business that it would bore you to hear about. On the eve of my departure, I presented myself to the Duchess. She received me less teasingly than usual, and said to me, with some emotion, "'Durfe, you are committing a great folly, but I know you, and I know you'll never change your mind. So I ask you only one thing. Please accept this small cross as a token of my friendship, and carry it with you until you return. It's a family relic that we value highly.' With a gallantry that was perhaps misplaced at such a moment, I kissed not the relic, but the charming hand that she gave me, and I passed the cross around my neck, and I've worn it ever since. I won't bore you, mesdames, with the details of my trip, or with my observations of the Hungarians and Serbs, those poor but brave and honest people. Even enslaved by the Turks, they never forgot their dignity or their former independence. Suffice it to say that having learned a little Polish during a visit I made to Warsaw, I was also able to acquire a bit of Serbian, as these two languages, and Russian and Bohemian as well, are, as you probably know, so many branches of a single language called Slavonic. And so I knew enough of the language to make myself understood, when one day I arrived in a village whose name will not interest you much. I arrived on a Sunday, a day which the Serbian people generally devote to amusements like dancing, sharpshooting, wrestling, and so on. So you can imagine my surprise when I reached the house where I planned to stay, and found the inhabitants in an extremely anxious state. Guessing that the situation was due to some recent misfortune, I started to withdraw from the house when a man of about thirty, a tall and imposing figure, approached me and took me by the hand. "'Enter, stranger, please, come in,' he said. "'Don't be alarmed at our sorrow.' "'You'll understand when you know the cause.' "'He then told me that, on rising one morning several days before, "'his elderly father, Gorcha, a restless and stubborn man, "'had taken from the wall a long Turkish musket. "'Children,' he said to his two sons, "'one named Dorda, the other Petar, "'I'm going up to the mountains to join the brave men "'who are chasing this dog, Alibek. "'And this was a Turkish robber "'who had been ravaging the countryside for some time.' Wait for me for ten days, and if I don't return by the tenth, have a mass said for my soul, because I'll be dead. Then old Gorcha added in a deadly serious tone, But if, God forbid, I come back after ten days, for your own sakes, do not let me in. If this happens, I command you to forget that I was your father, no matter what I say or do, and to impale my heart with an aspen stake, "'because I will be a cursed Vortilac returning to suck your blood. "'I should explain to you, madame, "'that Vortilacs, as the Slavic peoples call vampires, "'are believed in those countries to be dead bodies "'that come out of their graves to suck the blood of the living. "'Their habits are similar to those of all vampires from any country, "'but they have one characteristic that makes them even more dreadful. "'The Vortilacs, madame, prefer to suck the blood of their closest relatives and dearest friends who, once dead, become vampires in turn. They claim that in Bosnia and Hungary, entire villages have become Vordelak villages. Father Augustin Calmet, in his curious book on ghosts and apparitions, 
cites many frightening examples. Several times the emperors of Germany have appointed commissions to investigate outbreaks of vampirism. The commissioners tell of exhuming bodies engorged with blood, which they stake in the heart and then burn in the village squares. The magistrates who were present at these executions attest, with oaths and sign statements, that they heard the dead howl at the moment that the stake was plunged into their hearts. Knowing this, it will be easy to understand, mesdames, the effect that old Gorch's word had on his sons. They both threw themselves at his feet and begged him to let them go in his place. In reply, he turned his back and left, humming the refrain of an old war song. The day I arrived in the village was precisely the end of the ten days, which of course explained his family's concern. They were a good and honest family. Dorda, the eldest son of the two, seemed a serious and resolute man. He was married with two children. His brother Petar, a handsome young man of eighteen years, had a face full of gentleness and courage, and was evidently the favorite of their younger sister, Sedenka, a classic Slavic beauty. I was struck not only by Sedenka's undeniable loveliness, but also by a certain resemblance she had to the Duchess de Gramont. They both had a delicate line on their foreheads, a characteristic that I've only ever noticed on these two women. This feature may not seem very appealing at first, but the more you noticed it, the more irresistible it became. Perhaps it was because I was so young then, but this resemblance, combined with Sedenka's charming and naive air, was truly irresistible. I had only known Sedenka for two minutes, but already I felt a sympathy for her that threatened to become a more tender emotion if I lingered too long in the village. We were all gathered in front of the house, around a table topped with cheese and bowls of milk. Sedenka spun. Her sister-in-law was preparing supper. The children were playing in the sand. Petar whistled nonchalantly as he cleaned his yatagan, or Turkish long knife. Dorda sat silently with his elbows on the table and his head in his hands. His eyes devoured the highway. I felt overcome by the general melancholy and could only watch sadly as the evening clouds framed the golden background of the sky and the silhouette of a monastery half hidden by the black pine forest. This monastery, as I learned later, had once been famous for a miraculous image of the Virgin, which, according to legend, was brought by angels and placed on an oak. But when the Turks invaded the country at the beginning of the last century, they slaughtered the monks and ransacked the monastery. All that was left were the walls, and a chapel served by a mysterious hermit. He gave tours of the ruins to the curious, and sheltered pilgrims who, as they traveled on foot from one holy site to another, liked to stop at the shrine of Our Lady of the Oak. As I said, I learned this all much later. That night I had other things on my mind besides Serbian archaeology. As often happens when you let your mind wander, I thought back to times past, to my childhood, to the beautiful France that I left behind for this remote, wild country. I thought of the Duchess de Gramont and said, Why not admit it? I also thought of other ladies, contemporaries of your grandmothers, whose images, without my knowledge, had crept into my heart following the image of the lovely Duchess. Soon I had forgotten my hosts and their worries. Suddenly, Dorda broke the silence. Woman, he asked his wife, what time did the old man leave? At eight o'clock, his wife answered. 
I heard the monastery bell. Good, said Dorda. It can't be later than half past seven. And he fell silent, fixing his eyes again on the highway which disappeared into the forest. I almost forgot to tell you, madame, that when the Serbs suspect someone of vampirism, they avoid calling him by name or referring to him directly, for fear it will summon him from the grave. So for some time, when speaking of his father, Dorda had only called him the old man. A few moments of silence passed. Suddenly one of the children tugged on Sedenka's apron. "'Auntie, when is Grandpa coming home?' A blow from Dorda was the answer to this untimely question. The child began to cry, but his brother said, with an expression of surprise and fear, "'Father, why can't we ask about Grandpa?' Another blow silenced the child. The two children began to bawl, and the rest of the family crossed themselves. At this point, I heard the monastery clock begin slowly to strike eight. Hardly had the first chime sounded in our ears than we saw a human form emerge from the woods and advance toward us. "'That's him! God be praised!' cried Sedenka, Petar, and their sister-in-law all at once. "'God keep us!' Dorda said solemnly. "'How do we know if the ten days have passed or not?' Everyone looked at him fearfully. Still the figure advanced toward us. He was a tall old man with a silver mustache and a pale, stern face, limping painfully along with a stick. As he approached, Dorda's face became darker. When the newcomer was near us, he stopped and surveyed his family with eyes that seemed to look right through them. They were so dull and sunken in their sockets. "'Well,' he said in a hollow voice, "'no one stands up to greet me? What is this silence? Don't you see that I'm hurt?' I then noticed that the old man's left side was bloodied. "'Help your father,' I said to Dorda. "'And you, Sedenka, bring him some spirits. He's about to faint.' "'Father,' Dorda said, as he approached Gorcha, "'show me your injury. I will try to help you.' He tried to open Gorcha's coat, but the old man pushed Dorda away roughly, holding both hands over his side. "'Clumsy ope,' he said. "'You're hurting me.' "'You've been wounded near the heart,' cried Dorda, his face pale. "'Take off your coat, now. You must, I tell you.' The old man stood up straight and stiff. "'Watch yourself,' he said in a low voice. "'If you touch me, you'll regret it.' Petar got between Dorda and his father. "'Let him be,' he said. "'Can't you see he's in pain?' "'Don't defy him,' said Dorda's wife. "'You know he won't tolerate that.' At that moment we saw a cloud of dust. It was the herd returning home from their grazing. Perhaps the dog that accompanied them didn't recognize her old master, or maybe she was agitated for other reasons. But as soon as she saw Gorcha, she stopped, hair bristling, and began to growl as if she saw something uncanny. "'What's wrong with that dog?' said the old man, looking more and more annoyed. "'What does all this mean? Have I become a stranger in my own home?' Have ten days in the mountains changed me so much that my own dogs don't recognize me? Do you hear? Dorda said to his wife. What? He admits that the ten days have passed. But didn't he return at the appointed time? Yes. Well, I know what has to be done. The damn dog is still barking. Kill it, cried Gorcha. Well, did you hear me? 
Dorda did not move, but Petar showed up with tears in his eyes, and seizing the musket from his father, he shot the dog, who fell, rolling in the dust. She was my favorite dog, Petar whispered. I don't know why father wanted her killed. Because that's what she deserved, said Gorcha. It's getting cold. I want to go inside. While this was going on outside, Sedenka had prepared for the old man a drink made from pears, honey, and raisins, but her father refused it in disgust. He showed the same aversion to a mutton-rice dish that Dorda offered him, and went to sit by the hearth, muttering between his teeth unintelligibly. A pine fire crackled in the fireplace, casting its flickering light on the figure of the old man, who was so pale that without the fire's glow he could have been taken for dead. Sedenka sat down beside him. Father? she said. You don't want anything to eat, and you don't want to rest. Perhaps you can tell us your adventures in the mountains. The girl knew that she could get on his good side by asking that, because the old man liked to talk about his battles and exploits. A kind of smile appeared on his colorless lips, though without reaching his eyes. He ran his hand through her beautiful blonde hair. Yes, my daughter, yes, Sedenka. I will tell you what happened to me in the mountains, but some other time, because I'm tired today. But I will tell you that Alibek is no more, and that it was by my hand he perished. If anyone doubts this, continued the old man, looking around at his family, here is the proof. He opened a bag that hung behind the two of them, and pulled out a head, pale and bloody, though not quite as pale as his own. We turned away in horror, but Gorcha handed it to Petar. Here, he said, hang it over the door, so that everyone who passes will know that Alabek is dead, and the roads are purged of robbers, except, of course, the Sultan's janissaries. Petar obeyed, picking up the head with revulsion. Now I understand, he said. The poor dog that I killed was upset because she smelled dead flesh. Yes, she smelled dead flesh, replied Dorda gloomily. He had slipped away without anyone noticing, and now he entered the house, holding in his hand an object that he placed in a corner and which looked to me like a stake. Dorda, his wife said in a low voice, you don't intend, I hope. My brother said his sister. What are you planning to do? But no, you won't do anything, will you? Let me be, said Dorda. I know what I have to do, and I won't do anything that isn't necessary. When night fell, the family went to bed. The part of the house where they slept was separated from my room by a very thin wall. I confessed that what I'd observed that evening had affected my imagination. With the lights out, the full moon shone into the room through a small low window close to my bed, casting a pale glow on the floor and walls, much as it does now, madame. In this room where we sit, I tried to sleep, but I couldn't. I attributed my insomnia to the moonlight, and I looked for something to serve as a curtain over the window, but I could find nothing. Then, hearing muffled voices behind the wall, I began to listen. Go to bed, woman, said Dorda, and Petar and Sedenka, you too. Don't worry about anything. I'll keep watch. No, Dorda, said his wife. I should watch. You worked until late last night, and you must be tired. Besides, I have to watch our oldest. You know he's been ill since yesterday. 
Be quiet and go to bed, said Dorda. I'll keep watch for both of us. But, brother, said Sedenka in her softest voice, there's no need to watch. Father is already asleep. See how calm and peaceful he looks? You don't know what you're talking about, either of you, Dorda said in a tone that brooked no argument. I told you to go to bed and let me watch. There fell a profound silence. Soon I felt my eyelids droop, and sleep overcame me. I thought I saw my door open slowly, and old Gorcha appear on the threshold. It was very dark in that corner of the room. I couldn't really see him, but only suspected that the figure was his. His eyes followed the movement of my breath, and seemed to be trying to guess my thoughts. Cautiously, he crept towards me on tiptoe. Suddenly he loomed above me at the side of my bed. I felt an inexpressible fear, but some invisible force held me there, immobile. The old man leaned over me, his livid face so close to mine that I thought I could feel his cadaverous breath. With a supreme effort, I forced myself awake, bathed in sweat. There was no one in my room, but glancing out the window, I clearly beheld old Gorcha with his face against the pane, staring at me with dreadful eyes. I had the strength to suppress a scream, and the presence of my mind to lie calmly, as if I had not seen anything. However, it seemed the old man only wanted to make sure that I was asleep, because he made no attempt to get in, but walked away from the window after scrutinizing me. I heard footsteps in the next room. Dorda was asleep, snoring to shake the walls. The child coughed at that moment, and I could make out Gorch's voice. "'You are not sleeping, little one?' he said. "'No, Grandpa,' said the child. "'And I want to talk to you.' "'And what shall we talk about?' "'I want you to tell me how you fought the Turks. "'I want to go fight the Turks, too.' "'Yes, I thought so, child. "'And I brought you a little yatigan that I'll give you tomorrow.' "'Oh, Grandpa, give it to me now.' "'But why, my little one? "'Did you not talk to me when it was daylight?' "'because father wouldn't let me. "'He's cautious, your father. "'So you want to have your little yet again? "'Oh, yes, I would, but not here, in case father wakes up. "'But where, then? "'If we go outside, I promise to be careful and not make any noise.' "'I seemed to hear Gorcha chuckle as the child got out of bed. "'I did not believe in vampires. "'But my nightmare had frayed my nerves.' "'wanting nothing to reproach myself for later. "'I got up and slammed my fist against the wall "'between myself and the room where the others were. "'The noise should have been enough to wake the seven sleepers, "'but I heard no response. "'I rushed for the door, determined to save the child, "'but I discovered that it was closed and locked "'and would not yield to my efforts to open it. "'As I tried in vain to escape, "'I could see the old man through my window, "'leaving with the boy in his arms. "'Get up!' "'Get up!' I shouted with all my strength, pounding the wall, which shook with the force of my blows. Only then did Dorda wake up. "'Where's the old man?' he called. "'Quickly!' I shouted at him. "'He just took your son!' With a kick, Dorda burst open the front door, which, like mine, had been barred from the outside, and ran in the direction of the woods. I finally managed to wake up Petar and Sedenka. We gathered in front of the house, and after a few minutes' wait, we saw Dorda return, carrying his son. 
He'd found the boy unconscious by the side of the road. The child soon recovered and seemed no worse for the experience. To our questions, he said that his grandfather had done him no harm. They had gone outside together to be more at ease. Once outside, he had lost consciousness without remembering how. As for Gorcha, he was gone. The rest of the night, as you might imagine, passed without sleep. The next day I learned that the Danube, which cut the main road a mile from the village, had begun to freeze over, which always happens in that region in the late fall and early spring. This prevented travel for a few days, and I had to delay my planned departure. Yet, even if I could have left, curiosity, combined with a more powerful attraction, would have kept me there. The more I saw Sedenka, the more I loved her. I am not one of those romantics, madame, who believe in the sudden and irresistible passion that we read about in novels, but I think there are cases where love blossoms more quickly than usual. Sedenka so remarkably reminded me of the Duchess de Gramont with that faint line traced on her forehead, the same line that, in France, had made me suicidal with longing. I'd fled Paris to escape her, and yet here she was again, in picturesque costume and speaking a harmonious foreign tongue. It was this resemblance, together with the strangeness of my situation and the mysteries that surrounded me, that kindled in me a desire that, in other circumstances, would have been vague and fleeting. In the course of the day I overheard Sedenka talking to her younger brother. "'What do you think of all this?' she asked him. "'Do you also suspect our father?' "'I dare not suspect him,' replied Petar, "'especially since the boy said that he wasn't hurt. "'As for father's disappearance, "'you know that he never tells us of his comings and goings.' "'I know,' Sedenka said, "'but something must be done, "'because you know Dorda.' "'Yes, I know. "'It would be useless to try and talk him out of it, "'but if we hide the stake, "'he can't get another one, "'because there's not a single aspen "'on this side of the mountains.' "'Yes,' Let's hide the stake, but don't tell the children, because they might tell Dorda. We'll keep it to ourselves, said Petar, and they parted. Night came, and still no news of old Gorcha. I lay awake, sprawled out on my bed, watching the moon shining brightly into my room. As sleep began to blur my thoughts, I suddenly felt, as if by instinct, the old man's approach. I opened my eyes and saw his ghastly face pressed against my window. This time I tried to get up, but it was impossible. It seemed as if all my limbs were paralyzed. After watching me carefully, the old man slipped away. I heard him go around the house and gently tap at the window of the room where Dorda and his wife slept. The child rolled over in his bed and moaned in his sleep. A few minutes of silence passed. Then again I heard a knock at the window. The child moaned again and woke up. Is that you, Grandpa? he asked. It's me, a low voice replied. I brought your little Yadigan. But I daren't go out. Father's forbidden me to. You needn't go out. Just open the window so you can come and kiss me. The child got up, and I heard him open the window. Calling upon all my energy to break my paralysis, I jumped out of bed and pounded on the wall. In a minute, Dorda was awake. I heard him swear. His wife shrieked. Soon the whole house was gathered round the unconscious child. Gorcha had disappeared again. Our ministrations managed to revive the child, but he was weak and could hardly breathe. 
the poor boy did not know why he had fainted. His mother and Sedenka blamed it on the fear of being caught talking to his grandfather. I said nothing. After the child grew quiet, everyone except Dorda went back to bed. Toward dawn I heard him wake his wife. The two talked quietly. Sedenka joined them, and I heard the two women sobbing. The child was dead. I needn't speak of the family's despair. No one yet attributed the death to old Gorcha, at least no one was speaking of it openly. Dorda was silent, but his still dark expression had taken on a terrible quality. For two days the old man did not reappear. On the night after the third day, the day of the child's funeral, I thought I heard footsteps around the house, and a voice of the old man who called out to the deceased boy's younger brother. For a moment I seemed to see Gorch's figure outlined against my window, but I could not tell if it was reality or my imagination, because that night the moon was covered by clouds. In any case, I thought it my duty to tell Dorda. He asked the boy, who replied that, yes, he had heard his grandfather calling him, and had seen him looking through the window. Dorda sternly ordered his son to wake him if the old man appeared again. Even all these circumstances did not stop my love for Sedenka from growing even more. In the day, I couldn't speak with her without the others overhearing. When night came, the thought of my imminent departure pierced my heart. Sedenka's room was separated from mine by a passage that overlooked the street on one side and the courtyard on the other. One evening, as the household retired for the evening, I decided to take a walk in the countryside to distract myself before sleeping. As I passed through the passage from my room, I saw that Sedenka's door was ajar. I stopped involuntarily. The familiar rustling of her dress made my heart pound. I heard words sung in a whisper. It was the song of a Serbian king about to leave for battle, bidding his beloved farewell. "'Oh, my young poplar,' said the old king, "'I'm off to war, and you will forget me. "'Your waist is more lissom than the slender young trees "'that grow at the foot of the mountain. "'Your lips are redder than rowan berries, "'and I, I am like an old oak stripped of leaves. "'My beard is whiter than the foam of the Danube. "'You will forget me, O oh my soul, and I shall die of grief, "'for the enemy will not dare to kill the old king.' "'And in the song the beautiful maid replied, I swear to be faithful to you and to never forget you, and if I break my oath, you may wake from the dead to suck all the blood from my heart. And the old king said, So be it. And he went to war, and how soon his lover forgot him. Here Sedenka stopped, as if she were afraid to finish the song. I couldn't contain myself any longer. Her voice, so sweet, so expressive, was the voice of the Duchess of Grammont. Impulsively, I pushed open the door and entered. Sedenka had removed her overblouse. She wore nothing but a chemise embroidered in gold and red silk that clung to her waist, and a simple checkered shirt. Her beautiful blonde tresses were unbraided, and her undress made her appear even more ravishing. Instead of being irritated at my sudden entrance, she seemed confused and blushed slightly. What are you doing here? What will they think if they catch us? Sedenka, my soul, I said. Don't worry. Everyone is asleep. Only the crickets in the grass and the beetles in the air can hear us. Oh, my friend! Fly! Fly! If my brother catches us, I'm lost. Sedenka, I'll go when you promise to love me forever, 
like the beautiful maiden promised her king in the ballad. I'm leaving soon, Sedenka. Who knows when we shall ever meet again? I love you more than my soul, more than my salvation. My life and my blood are yours. Can't you give me one hour in exchange? Many things can happen in an hour, Sedenka said, thoughtfully, but she left her hand in mine. You don't know my brother, she continued with a shudder. I have a feeling he'll find us. Calm yourself, my Sedenka, I told her. Your brother is tired from his day's work. He sits drowsing to the sound of the wind playing in the trees. His sleep is deep, the night is long, and I only ask you for a single hour. And then, farewell. Perhaps forever. Oh, no, not forever, Sedenka cried, then recoiled, as if afraid of her own voice. Oh, Sedenka, I cried, when I see you, when I hear you, I can't control myself. I obey a superior force. Forgive me, Sedenka. And like a fool, I pressed her to my heart. Oh, you're not my friend, she said, breaking free of my arms and escaping deeper into her room. I don't know how I replied to her, because I was confused by my audacity. Not that sometimes, on similar occasions, it hasn't worked for me, but despite my passion, I still had a sincere respect for Sedenka's innocence. In fact, I started to regale her with those dashing phrases that had always worked so well for me with beautiful ladies. But then, ashamed of myself, I stopped. The girl's simplicity kept her from understanding what I hinted at, though all of you ladies, as I see by your smiles, have easily guessed. So I stood there before her, unsure what to say, when suddenly I saw her flinch and stare at the window with a look of terror. I followed the direction of her eyes, and distinctly saw the motionless figure of Gorcha watching us from outside. At that moment I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. I turned. It was Dorda. "'What are you doing here?' he asked. Rattled by his brusque question, I pointed to his father peering in at us through the window. Gorcha disappeared as soon as Dorda saw him. "'I heard the old man, and I came to warn your sister,' I said. Dorda's stare bored through me as if he were reading the depths of my soul. He took me by the arm and led me to my room, and then left without a word. The next day, the family was gathered in front of the house around a table laden with milk and cheese. "'Where is the boy?' asked Dorda. "'In the courtyard,' said his mother, playing his favorite game of fighting the Turks. Hardly had she uttered these words when, to our great surprise, we saw Gorch's imposing form coming from the bottom of the woods and walking slowly towards us. He sat down at the table as he had done on the day that I arrived. "'Father, welcome,' murmured his daughter-in-law in a barely audible voice. "'Welcome, father,' repeated Sedenka and Petar quietly. "'Father,' Dorda said in a firm voice, though his face had lost its color, "'we'd like you to say grace.' The old man turned away, frowning. "'Say grace, this instant,' repeated Dorda and make the sign of the cross. Or by St. George! Sedenka and her sister-in-law leaned toward the old man and begged him to say the prayers. No! No! said the old man. He has no right to order me around, and if he insists, then I'll curse him. Dorda got up and ran into the house. Soon he returned with fury in his eyes. Where is the stake? he cried. Where did you hide the stake? Sedenka and Petar exchanged glances. "'You dead thing!' 
Dorda said to the old man. "'What have you done with my eldest boy? Why did you kill my child? Give me back my son, you corpse!' And as he spoke, he became increasingly pale, and his eyes blazed. The old man glared at him motionless. "'The stake! Where is the stake?' cried Dorda. "'May all our misfortune fall on the head of whoever hit it!' At that moment we heard the merry laughter of the youngest child, and we saw him come towards us, riding the big stake like a horse, and raising his little voice in the battle-cry of the Serbs. Dorda's eyes lit up. He snatched the stake from the child and rushed towards his father. The creature screamed and ran in the direction of the wood with a speed practically supernatural for his age. Dorda chased him through the fields, and we soon lost sight of them. The sun had set by the time Dorda came home, deathly pale, with his hair disheveled. As he sat by the fire, I seemed to hear his teeth chattering. Nobody dared question him. By the hour when the Farrelly was accustomed to retire for the evening, he seemed to recover his energy. Taking me aside, he said in the most natural way, "'My dear sir, I have just seen the river. The ice is cleared. There is nothing to prevent your departure. There is no need,' he added, glancing at Sedenka, "'to say good-bye to my family. On their behalf, I wish you all the happiness in the world, and I hope that you also remember us fondly.' Tomorrow at daybreak, you will find your horse saddled and ready to follow your lead. Farewell. Remember your host sometimes, and forgive him if your stay here has not been as trouble-free as he would have liked. At that moment, the hard lines of Dorda's face took on an almost cordial expression. He escorted me to my room and shook my hand one last time. Then he shivered, and his teeth chattered as if from the cold. Left alone? I was too preoccupied to sleep, as you can imagine. I had loved many women in my life. I had experienced tenderness and spite and jealousy. But never, not even when leaving the Duchess de Grammont, had I felt the intense sadness that tore my heart at that moment. Before the sun had appeared, I put on my traveling clothes, hoping for one last conversation with Sedenka. But Dorda was waiting for me in the hallway. Any chance to say farewell to her was gone. I jumped on my horse and rode away, promising myself that I would return to the village on my way back from Jassy. My anticipation for the future, as distant as it was, gradually drove away my worries. I imagined my return with satisfaction, picturing all the details of a future meeting with Sedenka. Suddenly my horse started, almost throwing me out of the saddle. The beast stopped short, its forelegs braced, and snorted in alarm, as if danger were nearby. Looking around, I saw a wolf about a hundred paces in front of me, digging in the earth. Hearing me, it fled. Spurring my horse forward to the spot that the wolf had abandoned, I saw a fresh grave. I thought I could distinguish the tip of a stake protruding a few inches above the earth that the wolf had disturbed. I didn't stay to make sure, but quickly rode away. Here the Marquis paused and took a pinch of snuff. "'Is that all?' asked the ladies. "'Unfortunately, no,' replied Monsieur Dufay. "'The rest of the story is a painful memory for me, "'one I would give much to be free of. "'The business that brought me to Jassy "'kept me there longer than I had expected, "'a full six months. "'What can I say? "'It is a sad truth to admit, "'but a truth nonetheless, "'that there are few lasting emotions on this earth. "'The success of my negotiations, 
the encouragement I received from the cabinet of Versailles, in a word, all the unpleasant politics that have annoyed us so much of late. In all of this my memory of Sedenka soon began to fade. And then there was the wife of the Gospodar, a very beautiful woman who speaks our language perfectly, and who had honored me on my arrival by singling me out from all the other young foreigners who were staying in Jassy. As steeped as I am in the principles of French gallantry, my Gallic blood would have revolted at the idea of repaying the kindness she showed me with ingratitude. So I responded obligingly to her advances, and, to put myself in a position to advance the interest and rights of France, I devoted myself to her as attentively as if I were the Gospodar himself. When I was recalled to France, I took the same route back that led me to Jassy. I was not thinking of Sedenka or her family when one night, riding through the countryside, I heard a church bell strike eight. The sound seemed familiar, and my guide told me there was a monastery nearby. I asked him the name, and he told me that it was the Virgin of the Oak. I urged my horse on, and soon we were knocking at the door of the monastery. The hermit opened the door and led us to the guest house. It was so full of pilgrims that I had no urge to spend the night there, so I asked if I could find a house in the village. You can find more than one, the hermit replied with a deep sigh. Thanks to that infidel Gorcha, there is no shortage of empty houses. What does that mean? I demanded of him. Is Gorcha still alive? Oh, no. He's well and truly buried with a stake through his heart. But he sucked the blood of Dorda's son. The child came back one night crying at the door, saying he was cold and wanting to come in. His foolish mother, although she had seen him buried with her own eyes, didn't have the courage to send him back to the cemetery and opened the door. The boy threw himself on her and drained her blood until she died. They buried her as well. But she returned to suck the blood of her younger son and then her husband, and then that of his brother. All are dead. And Sedenka, I said. She went mad with grief, poor child. Let us not speak of her. The hermit's answer was not encouraging, and I didn't have the courage to repeat my question. Vampirism is contagious, continued the hermit, crossing himself. Many families have been completely killed off, and if you want my advice, you'll stay the night in the monastery. For though in the village you may not be devoured by Vortilax, the dread will be enough to turn your hair white before I finish ringing the call to the morning mass. I am just a poor hermit, he continued, but the generosity of travelers has enabled me to provide for their needs. I have exquisite cheeses, raisins that will make your mouth water just to look at them, and a few bottles of toque as fine as the wine of his holiness the patriarch. It seemed to me at this point that the hermit had turned into an innkeeper. I suspected that he was purposely telling me fairy tales to convince me to stay, and to make myself agreeable to heaven by imitating the generosity of those travelers who enabled the holy man to meet their needs. But the word fear has always affected me like a bugle affects a war-horse. I would have been ashamed of myself if I had not left for the village immediately. My guide, trembling, asked permission to stay at the monastery, which I willingly granted. It took me about a half an hour to reach the village, and I found it deserted. Not a light shone in any of the windows. Not a sound or a song could be heard. I passed in silence before all these houses, most of which I recognized, and finally arrived at Dorda's home. Whether from sentimental memory or from the recklessness of youth, I decided to spend the night there. 
I dismounted and knocked at the gate. No one answered. I pushed on the gate. It opened, creaking on its hinges, and I entered the yard. I tied my horse, still saddled, in a shed, where I found a sufficient supply of oats for one night, and then I walked resolutely toward the house. All the doors were open, yet all the rooms seemed uninhabited. Sedenka's room looked as if it had been abandoned only the day before. Some of her clothes were still lying on the bed. On a table I saw some jewelry that I had given her shining in the moonlight. I recognized a small enamel cross that I had bought in Budapest. I could not deny to myself, though my heart sank at the thought, that my love for her was a thing of the past. Still, I wrapped myself in my coat and lay on her bed, and soon sleep overcame me. I don't remember the details of my dream, but I know that I saw Sedenka as beautiful, innocent, and loving as before. I blamed myself for my selfishness and fickleness. I wondered how I could have abandoned this poor child who loved me, how I could have forgotten her. In my dream, her image merged with the Duchess de Grammont until I saw the two of them as one and the same person. I threw myself at her feet and begged her forgiveness. All of my being, all of my soul, was filled with an ineffable feeling, a mixture of melancholy and happiness. I was deep in my dream when I was half awakened by a melodious sound like the rustling of a wheat field in the breeze. The rustling wheat seemed to mingle with birdsong, with a rolling waterfall, with whispering trees. Then all those confused sounds resolved themselves into the rustle of a woman's skirt, and, as that thought came to me, I awoke. I opened my eyes and saw Sedenka near my bed. The moon shone so brightly that I could see every detail, adorable traits that were once so dear to me, and which in my dream I prized even more. Sedenka seemed more beautiful and alluring than I remembered. She wore the same attire as before, a simple chemise embroidered with gold and silk thread, and a skirt that wrapped tightly around her hips. Sedenka, I said, as I sat up in the bed. "'Is it really you, Sedenka?' "'Yes, it's me,' she replied, in a soft, sad voice. "'It's your Sedenka whom you had forgotten. "'Only, why didn't you come sooner? "'It's too late now. "'You must go. "'A moment longer and you're lost. "'Farewell, my friend. "'Goodbye forever.' "'Sedenka,' I said, "'so much has happened. "'I've been told of your tragedies.' "'Come, let's talk together. "'Let me comfort you.' "'Oh, my friend,' she said, "'don't believe everything they say about us, "'but go, go as quickly as possible, "'because if you stay here, you certainly will die. "'But, Sedenka, what danger threatens me? "'Can't you give me an hour? "'Just one hour to spend with me.' Sedenka started, and a strange change came over her features. "'Yes,' she said. "'An hour. "'An hour. "'Just like when I sang the ballad of the old king "'and you walked into this room. "'Is that what you mean? "'Oh, yes. "'I will give you an hour. "'But no,' she said, recovering herself. "'Go! "'Go away! "'Go, please! "'I tell you, run! "'Flee while you can!' A wild energy animated her features. I didn't understand the reason for her words to me, but she was so beautiful that I decided to stay in spite of what she said. Finally yielded to my entreaties, 
she sat down next to me, recalling old times and blushingly telling me that she had loved me from the day that I arrived. Gradually, though, I noticed a change in her. Her former reserve had given way to a strange recklessness. Her eyes, once so shy, were now rather bold. At last, I realized with surprise that her manner towards me was far from the ladylike modesty of the past. Is it possible, I thought, that Sedenka was not the pure and innocent young girl she seemed to be six months ago? Had she only worn that guise because she was afraid of her brother? Could I have been so grossly deceived? But then why did she beg me to go? Was this just a mere subtle form of coquetry? I wondered, but it didn't matter. If Sedenka wasn't the Diana that I thought she was, well, I would compare her to another goddess, one no less charming. Thank God. And I preferred the role of Adonis to Acteon. If these classical references seem old-fashioned, mesdames, please remember that what I had the honor to tell you happened in the year of our Lord, 1758. Mythology was then all the rage, and I prided myself on being with the times. Things have changed since then, and it was not so long ago that the revolution overthrew the relics of paganism, along with the Christian religion, putting the goddess of reason in their place. This goddess, mesdames, was never my mistress when I found myself in your presence, and at the time of which I speak, I was even less inclined to offer her sacrifices. I surrendered without hesitation to my desire for Sedenka and went joyously into her arms. Some time had passed in sweet intimacy when, amusing myself by adorning Sedenka with all her jewelry, I tried to put the small enamel cross that I had given her around her neck. When I moved to do so, Sedenka recoiled with a shudder. "'Enough of that childishness, my friend,' she said. "'Let those trinkets alone, and tell me about what has been happening with you.' Her reaction started me thinking. Looking at her more carefully, I realized that she no longer wore around her neck, as she had in the past, the numerous little icons, relics, and sachets of incense that the Serbs wear from childhood to the grave. "'Sedenka,' I said, "'where are the icons around your neck?' "'I've lost them,' she replied impatiently, and immediately changed the subject. A vague foreboding of I knew not what dawned on me. I wanted to leave, but Sedenka stopped me. "'What is this?' she demanded. "'You asked me for an hour, and now you're leaving after only a few minutes.' "'Sedenka,' I said. "'You were right to ask me to leave. "'I thought I heard a noise, "'and I'm afraid that someone will catch us.' "'Don't worry, my friend. "'Everyone is sleeping. "'Only the crickets in the grass "'and the beetles in the air can hear us.' "'No, Sedenka, I must leave. "'Stop,' Sedenka said. "'I love you more than my soul, "'more than my salvation. "'You told me that your life and your blood were mine.' "'But your brother, your brother, Sedenka. "'What if he catches us? "'Calm yourself, my soul. "'My brother is drowsing to the sound of the wind playing in the trees. "'His sleep is deep. "'The night is long, and I only ask you for an hour.' "'As she said that, Sedenka looked so beautiful "'that the vague terror that had been agitating me "'began to give way to my desire to stay with her. "'A mixture of fear and indescribable pleasure filled my whole being.' As I faltered, Sedenka's manner became even more tender. I gave in, promising myself all the while to be on my guard. But as I said earlier, 
I've ever been good at doing things by halves, and when Sedenka, noticing my reserve, suggested that we chase away the chill of the evening with a few generous glasses of wine that she told me she had gotten from the good hermit, I accepted her offer with an eagerness that made her smile. And the wine had its effect. By the second glass, the bad feeling I had over the cross and the missing icons had vanished completely. Sedenka, half-dressed, with her hair unbraided and her jewelry glittering in the moonlight, seemed irresistible. Unable to contain myself, I took her into my arms. And then, mesdames, there occurred one of those mysterious miracles that I cannot explain, but whose existence my experiences have forced me to believe in, as much as I hate to admit it. The force with which I had embraced Sedenka drove the point of the cross I was wearing, the one that the Duchess de Gramont had given me, into my chest. The sharp pain went through me like a bolt of lightning. I looked at Sedenka and saw that her features, though still beautiful, were stiff as death, that her eyes seemed not to see me, and that her smile was convulsed like the grin of a corpse. At the same time, I noticed in the room a nauseating stench like that of a poorly sealed crypt. The awful truth stood before me in all its ugliness, and I remembered too late the hermit's warnings. I realized, too, how precarious my position was. Everything depended on my courage and composure. I turned away from Sedenka to conceal the horror on my face. My eyes fell on the window, and I saw the infamous Gorgia leaning on a bloodied stake and staring at me with the eyes of a hyena. At the other window I saw Dorda's pale face bearing at that moment a frightening resemblance to his father. Both of them were watching my movements, and I had no doubt that they would attack me if I made the slightest attempt to escape. I pretended not to see them, and making a violent effort, I continued. Yes, madame, I continued to caress Sedenka, just as I had been before my terrible discovery. Meanwhile, I anxiously planned my escape. I noticed that Gorcha and Dorda exchanged impatient glances with Sedenka. From outside, I heard the voice of a woman and the cries of children, frightful howls like those of wildcats. It's time to go, I thought, and the sooner the better. I said to Sedenka in a voice loud enough for her hideous kin to hear, I am quite tired, my child. I'd like to lie down and sleep for a few hours, but first I should make sure that my horse has been fed. Stay here and wait for me. I kissed her cold pale lips and went out in the shed. I found my horse agitated and covered with foam. He had not touched his oats, but his neighing as he saw me coming made me afraid that he might give me away. Luckily, the vampires had heard my conversation with Sedenka and weren't alarmed. I checked that the gate was open, sprang into the saddle, and dug my spurs into the flanks of my horse. As I passed out the gate, I had time to see the large band gathered round the house with their faces pressed against the windows. The suddenness of my exit must have kept them from noticing right away, because for some time all I could hear in the silence of the night was the steady gallop of my horse. I was congratulating myself on my escape, when I heard a sound behind me, like a storm beating against the mountains. A thousand confused voices shouted, screamed, and seemed to argue with each other. Then everything fell silent all at once, and I heard a trampling behind me like a troop of infantry approaching at a run. I urged my mount on, my spurs tearing into his flanks. My heart beat, and I burned as if with fever, desperately trying to keep my presence of mind. Behind me, I heard a voice calling out, Stop! Stop, my friend! I love you more than my soul! 
I love you more than my salvation. Stop! Your blood is mine! At the same time, a cold breath brushed my ear, and I felt Sedenka throw herself onto my horse behind me. My heart! My soul! she said to me. When I see you, when I hear you, I can't control myself. I obey a superior force. Forgive me, my friend. Forgive me. And wrapping her arms around me, she tried to pull me to her and bite me in the throat. A terrible struggle ensued between us. Finally, I managed to grab Sedenka by her braids in one hand, with my other arm around her waist. Bracing myself on my stirrups, I threw her down. Immediately, my strength left me, and delirium seized me. A thousand insane, terrible, grimacing images pursued me. First Dorda and his brother Petar skimmed the road and tried to bar my way. They failed, and rejoicing, I turned and saw old Gorcha hurtling down the road, using his stake like the Tyrolean mountaineers used poles to propel themselves across chasms. Him, too, I left in the dust. Then his daughter-in-law, who dragged her children after her, threw one of her boys onto the point of his stake. Using the stake as a throwing stick, Gorcha flung the child at me with all his strength. I avoided getting hit, but with truly bulldog instinct, the little toad clamped his jaws under the neck of my horse. I pulled him off with difficulty. The other boy was hurled at me the same way, but he fell beyond the horse and was crushed under its hooves. I don't remember anything else or how I survived, but when I came to, it was broad daylight, and I found myself lying on the road next to my dying steed. And so ended, mesdames, a love affair that should have cured me forever of the desire for romance. Some of the contemporaries of your grandmothers could tell you whether I was any wiser in the future. I still shudder to think that if I'd succumbed to my enemies, I would have become a vampire as well. But heaven did not allow that to happen, and far from thirsting for your blood, mesdames, I ask nothing better than that, old as I am, I should still shed mine in your defense. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre for one of the oldest vampire stories known. There were a few terms used in the story that, that you might find of interest, so I thought I'd share them with you as sort of a postscript. The Janissaries were mentioned, and that term comes from the Ottoman Turkish Janissary, meaning new soldier, and those were elite infantry units that formed the Ottoman Sultan's household troops and bodyguards. Sultan Murad I created the force in 1383. It was abolished by Sultan Mahmud II in 1826. The Seven Sleepers were mentioned. They were commonly called the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus, and that referred to a group of Christian youths who hid inside a cave outside the city of Ephesus around 250 A.D. to escape a persecution of Christians being conducted during the reign of the Roman Emperor Decius. Another version is that Decius ordered them imprisoned in a closed cave to die there as punishment for being Christian. Having fallen asleep inside the cave, they purportedly woke approximately 180 years later during the reign of Theodosius II, following which they were reportedly seen by the people of the now-Christian city before dying. He also referred to the town of Jassy, which is one of the largest cities and municipalities in Romania, and traditionally one of the leading centers of Romanian social, cultural, academic, and artistic life. And he also referred to the Greek Adonis. Adonis was a handsome young man over whom Aphrodite and Persephone fought. To settle the dispute, Zeus ordered him to spend a third of the year with Persephone, a third with Aphrodite, and a third with whoever he chose. He chose to spend two-thirds of the year with Aphrodite. Actaeon was a hunter who accidentally saw Diana naked 
as she bathed. Diana turned him into a stag as punishment, and he was torn to death by his own hounds. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Remember to subscribe to us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories and at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. Expand your literary horizons. See the show notes for links. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode here. Thanks for being great fans.